Welcome home. There's always room for one more. Good to be with you this morning. Southwestern's back in the house. Yeah, it's been a rough first week of school, hasn't it? We heard the collective groan, church family. There are young scholars who need our prayers this week, all right? Hey, welcome back. We're glad that you're here, whether it's your first time or one of many. Welcome to Elevate, where there's always room for one more. And it's good to have kind of a full feeling today. Southwestern, you're back. I know you're, it's been a rough week, but we are super glad that you all are here. Uh, my name is Michael, lead pastor here at Keene, uh, formerly young adult pastor. We're working hard on that, guys. We're hopefully, hopefully, in the next couple weeks, we'll be able to bring somebody in for an interview. We'll keep you abreast on that. Um, so God is working, and God is faithful. He's gonna continue to move and work in our community. Today, we begin a series called The Welcome Table. Uh, and it's we, we spent a couple weeks looking at the presence of God, and now we're looking at the presence of God amongst God's people. So we're going to dive into scripture today, and we're going to start there in Mark chapter 10. We're not going to hang out in Mark chapter 10 very long. But we have to have an understanding of who Jesus was and what he came to do. So Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we'll put up on the screen for you. We have it. There it is. For even the Son of Man came, what? Not to be served but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's what Jesus came to do. Luke chapter 19 says it similarly, but a little bit different. For the son of man came to seek and to save those who are what? Lost, right? Very familiar, very like we get this text, but there's one that follows the formula, but not to the very end. Luke 7:34 up on the screen for you. The son of man came what? Eating and drinking. And you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, absolutely, but he's also described as coming, eating and drinking and being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Tim Chester in the book, A Meal with Jesus, puts it this way. The first two statements are of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and to save that which was lost. The third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? Jesus came eating and drinking. Anybody ready for a good meal today? Some of you, okay, one, we'll meet for lunch. Maybe you've already had a good meal today. How many of you have some breakfast this morning? Shout out to Pastor April for that. Yeah, a few of you, good. Glad you're, glad you're catching it. Here's the thing. We're going to be looking over the next couple of weeks at the gospel of Luke. And Robert Karras puts it this way as he's commenting on Luke. He wrote a book. We'll put it up on the screen for you, Robert Karras. Next one. There we go. He wrote a book called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. Sounds like a pretty cool book, right? Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. You're not taking the paper and chewing on it. You're going to encounter meals. Here's what he says. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. It's how Luke, the physician, one way in which he organizes his gospel. Many conversations are recorded around a meal. Maybe Luke, being a good physician, knows the benefit of a little wine on the stomach, a little food. It's good for you, and that's how he centers his gospel. And here's the context. Luke chapter 4, Jesus has got up and publicly proclaimed, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to set free the captive, to open the eyes of the blind, to heal those who are sick. And then he goes on this healing spree. He heals a leper, he heals a paralytic, and he's going from town to town and healing the people that are in his midst. He's also calling disciples, Peter, 
Andrew, James, John. And the really cool part about this section of scripture between Luke chapter four and Luke chapter five is that Jesus is normally entering unclean spaces, spaces that are ceremonially unclean. And when he leaves that space, it has been transformed from unclean to clean. Jesus touch heals people. And we pick up the story in Luke chapter five, verse 27. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi. Some of the other gospels will call him Matthew, same person, Matthew, Levi, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. And in verse 28, so Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Levi, unfortunately, was a part of the lowest of the low in the Jewish society. The Jews did not like that the Romans taxed them. That was against their good consciences to have some national body other than their own leaders taxing them. And they hated even more that the Romans would use Jews to tax the people. So Levi is a Jew. He's working for the government against, in some ways, his own people. And tax collectors didn't have a good rap. Many tax collectors were corrupt, and in order for them to make some money, they knew what the government was needing in taxes, and they would charge a little bit more beyond what the tax and the government required. And so they lived well. But for some reason, Levi is not satisfied. He's not satisfied with the life that he lives, because when Jesus comes to him and says, come follow me, he gets up and leaves everything behind. Doesn't check how much he has in his 401k, doesn't check what his pension is, how much he's got in the bank. It says he left everything and followed Jesus. The story continues, Luke chapter five, verse 29. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Jesus was the guest of honor at this banquet. He's excited. He's encountered a new rabbi. He wants his friends to meet him. And so many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. In this culture, when you had a time of celebration, you would bring your friends around and celebrate with a meal. And it was an insult if you didn't get invited to the party. You've been there, right? Seen on your friend's story the night before that they had a really good time at a place at some food or like top golf or something like that. And you're like, hey, I didn't get invited to that. I thought we were friends. Now you've experienced that insult, right? See, at this time and even today, table fellowship indicated immediate relationships amongst those who shared it. There was a mutual acceptance. For you to eat a meal with somebody else says that you accepted them as a person, no matter where they've come from. And it was often when you would transact business with somebody else that you would share a meal with that person before you settled on the terms of that business transaction. They needed to know you. It wasn't just go to the car dealership and like don't make eye contact with anybody and don't accept anything that they offer. I just need to leave with my car, right? No, there's a family experience that comes together with it. And we share this every week here at Keem. It's become part of our culture over the past year. If you come in around 9, 9.30 in the morning, we've got some sweet treats out and some go-go juice and some other stuff that you can drink and participate in. And there's fellowship that happens. There's a togetherness. We've got those little bar height tables that you can kind of lean on and you've got your little snack or whatever you got going on. You're talking to the person next to you. We engage in table fellowship together week in and week out. 
It's a part of what the body of Christ does. It's a part of what communities do. Sean Brace in the book, The Table I Long For, Adventist pastor up in Maine puts it this way, welcoming others into your home is one of the most vulnerable and authentic ways you can pursue God's mission. The vulnerable space, right? I remember when my wife and I moved to Michigan, I was attending the seminary and we've got our little postage stamp of an apartment that we had moved into. Got all of our things. You could like shake it and we would rattle around and the things would rattle around inside of it, right? And we had, we had met some friends and some acquaintances and it was the, the first time that we were gonna be inviting someone over to our house. And this was, this was big news, right? Because we'd never done that before as a couple. I, you know, we, we'd had some close friends before we got married and like that's, that's one thing. But people that you've just met like literally a couple days before, you're like, hey, why don't you guys come over? Because we kind of hit it off, like we want to make friends. And the question that kind of went through our minds and they may go through yours as well when you invite somebody over to your home, uh, is the bathroom clean? Uh, did we make sure that everything that's out is kind of tucked away into that closet and we want to make sure do not open that one door? Like, you've got that in your house, right? Uh, slide everything under the bed. Like whatever you got to do, it's like, we've got to make sure that they think that we live, live these just immaculate life, right? Everything will be clean and nothing will be out of place. So they leave and just, it all comes crumbling out, right? So there's a level of discomfort there. It's like, ah, it's a vulnerable place. And it's even more vulnerable because once you invite somebody into your home, it can become even more uncomfortable because you don't know when they're going to leave, right? You've been there where you're like, hand on the knee, well, it's been really good having you over. Like they're just not getting the hint. Like if somebody has said how well the night has been going several times, it's probably your cue to like, you know, find someplace else to be, right? But it's an intimate moment. We're sharing that space with one another. And this space for Levi is one of joy. It's one of excitement for him. But there's some other people that are coming to this meal that don't necessarily share the same views that he has or that Jesus has. The story continues, Luke 5.30. But the Pharisees, they get a bad rap, but they also then don't always make the right decision. The Pharisees, their teachers of religious law, complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. So they don't confront Jesus directly, but they complain bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scrum? Can we say that in church? Probably think of some other words that we probably don't want to say in church that would describe that. Some translations of this portion of scripture will say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Remember, Luke has just described the party as tax collectors and other invited guests. And the Pharisees have taken those other invited guests and called them sinners. Why do you eat with such sinners? Banquets were supposed to be joyous occasions. And the Pharisees in some ways, like negative Nancys, they're just kind of like party poopers. They're like, what's going on? Like, how can you eat with such despicable people? And it's not that the Pharisees are upset with the party, They're upset with who's on the guest list. You see, who we include at our table and how we describe them says more about who we are than who they are. Let that sink in for a moment. The good news of the gospel is about to be shared around this table and they're worried about the guest list. Story continues, Luke 5, 31. Jesus doesn't even let his disciples, he's like, let me, let me, let me block this right now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna support you. He says, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. In verse 32, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Jesus said, if you were to think of me as a doctor, then I've come to heal the sick. Those are who in need. I'm not gonna waste my time in the people that are pretending to be 
righteous because the Pharisees thought that they were righteous. They thought they could earn their way into heaven, earn their way into acceptance with Jesus. Jesus, who holds the cure, is willing to give it to all who will receive at the welcome table. He goes to those who will recognize their need of him. Grace is found at the table with Jesus. And who are we to deny anyone access to that grace? His presence at the party is grace infused. He welcomes the marginalized, the least, the last, the lot, and confronts self-righteousness. Says, if I'm the doctor, don't you think I'm gonna be amongst the sick? His true salvation is found at the welcome table with Jesus. The invitation to be a part of God's feast. And the the Pharisees aren't done yet. They're not satisfied with where Jesus is going. The story continues, Luke 5.33. One day, some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly. Fasting and prayer had become synonymous with religious piety. If you fasted and prayed, you were more religious, therefore more spiritual. And In the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, really the only prescription for fasting is around the day of atonement when the high priest would atone for the sins of the people. And by this time in Jewish history, they had codified fasting to the point that those who thought themselves the most pious would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Don't know why they picked it. That was just Mondays and Thursdays were the day that they were gonna fast. They're like John's disciples fast and pray. They are orthodox in their understanding and approach to the gospel And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples eating and drinking? Fasting was held as the highest priority of piety, but Jesus' disciples were found eating and drinking. And Jesus doesn't waste any time. He responds, verse 34, or verse, yeah, verse 34, excuse me. Jesus responded, do wedding guests feast, fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. You go to a wedding party, you're gonna partake. If you don't partake in the food, that's an insult to the people that have served it and the people that you're celebrating it. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and they will fast at that point. Jesus is foreshadowing his death. He's foreshadowing, hey, I'm gonna head to the cross and that's when you're gonna fast. But while I'm with you, why would my disciples not celebrate with me as I'm here? And Jesus is poking at the religious fastidiousness of the Pharisees. Desire of Ages puts it this way, page 280. A legal religion can never lead souls to Christ. Our own works can never purchase salvation. Auntie Ellen is sometimes a little vague on some things. She's very clear on this point. And we can debate on some of the other stuff, but she's extremely clear on this point. If you're seeking salvation, there is nothing that you can do to purchase the gift that God has given you. And Jesus is poking back at the religious leaders and saying, hey, that fasting and prayer, that's not what gives you salvation or access to salvation. While I'm with you, why don't we feast that I'm here with you? And he continues on, Luke 5, 36 through 39. He says, then Jesus gave them an illustration. He likes speaking in parables. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. You've been there, right, as a kid? Like you, uh, jeans and dirt and gravel don't necessarily mix when you're a little kid. You got holes in your jeans. I had them. My mom patched them and then repatched them and then repatched them and repatched them. You think about this. You put another piece of fabric on an, on, an, on an old garment, a new piece of fabric on an old garment, the integrity of the old garment will not hold up to the integrity of the new patch. And more holes are created. 
Jesus is poking at him again. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins for the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. Verse 38, new wine must be stored in new wineskins. Verse 39, but no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. Jesus in a way, is saying that my word, what I'm bringing to you, this good, good gospel, is meant as a total replacement, not as a source of useful patches. Too often we treat Jesus like an amendment or an appendix in our lives, something that could be easily put in or removed. And he teaches that he's not merely come to add devotional routines to what we've already been practicing. No, Jesus brings not a patch, but a whole new garment. We see this vision throughout all of scripture. Revelation, when the people of God are described, when they are seated in glory with God, that's not described as like, yeah, they've got their earthly garments with a couple of God patches on them, right? We are clothed in white garments, completely covered by the grace and the love of Jesus. And Jesus is speaking to these Pharisees and he's saying, it's not enough to just kind of pair what I've got with the old ways. You've got to completely do away with the old to usher in the new. This became a reality for me uh, this week as uh, my wife and I are preparing. Our baby's coming in November. We've got to get the nursery together. And part of that includes painting a wall. And I'm, I'm a guy and I chip off the old block in some ways. And when I like to do things according to a pattern. And like I, I go to the same home improvement store and like buy the same products and like do the same thing because they worked before, they're going to work in the future. So Melissa and I go to the home improvement store this week and we walk to the place where there's a particular type of paint that I like and the particular color, everything else. And we go to that part of the aisle and we're looking at the, the colors of the rainbow all around and the, trying to pick out the colors that we're gonna put in the nursery. And it came to the point that we were a little bit undecided. There were some decent colors, but colors that weren't just like, that's the one that we want. We're looking for a real nice sage green kind of safari for the little guy, right? Yeah, it's a nice aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ladies in the front row are like, yep, no, that's great, that's great. We didn't really, really find the color. And I'm like, well, you know, we can settle for this. And she's like, why don't we try the other brand of paint in their colors? I'm like, well, I, I, I'm good with the old. And my wife, gracious as she is, discipled me from one side of the paint aisle to the other side of the paint aisle. And she picks, it's like the first or second one that she picks out. She's like, this is the color, like this is it. It was different than all the other ones that we had looked at. And you know, I they probably make the paint like the same factory and just like stick different labels on it, and, like mess with their minds and like it's a little priceless, whatever. But here's the thing. This text became real to me this week because if I was stuck in my old way because it's the old thing I do, I would never consider the new. And we would have settled for subpar, something second off instead of going for the thing that really, really works nicely in the wall. And I painted the wall this week and it works about the same as the other paint. Like it's, like, it's good. Like, I, I don't know. I, maybe I should branch out a little bit, right? Sean Brace puts it this way, page 115, the table along for sitting at the table together isn't something we do in addition to church. It is one of the most foundational expressions of church. How do we know this? So we're kind of out with the old, in with the new. Maybe the old is the new, right? Stick around long enough, fashion kind of reinvents itself and you just kind of keep the same thing in the closet and 30 years later, here it is again, right? Here's the thing, when Jesus is at this table with his disciples and with the Pharisees and with Levi at this party, Jesus has a vision of a table that's coming. 
one that God has proclaimed from ages ago, and it's found in Isaiah chapter 25. And it reads this way, Isaiah 25, verse 6. In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. If you struggle with that translation, I'll bring them one next week that says Welch's and Worthington, okay? You'll catch that later. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. Don't we long for the shadow of death to be moved away from the earth? He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and his people. The Lord has spoken. When Jesus sits at the table with Levi, this is his vision. That there's a welcome table spread for God's people that is welcome to all. Everyone has access to the table. And this welcome table is a call to grace. The least, the last, the lost, whoever we would count out would discredit. That's the people that God's after. And he's after your heart as well. So my invitation for our community this morning is that we would set a table, a welcome table, where there's always room for one more. A table that's an action call for us to call out in grace to the people around us and invite them to the table, those that the world has counted out, that the church might have counted out to say, you are welcome in this space because at the table with Jesus, there is grace. At the table with Jesus, there is love, there is acceptance, there is forgiveness. Come to the table with Jesus. The welcome table is a call to grace where all are welcome.